Welcome to the Providence Community Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Nathan Herndon. If you would like to stay connected with us, download our app, Providence Community, or visit our website, providencecommunity.org. the hill and wrapping up this series today, um, I want us to, to direct our hearts toward the dreams of Jesus, his heart for the church. Basically what I've tried to do is I've tried to take really my, the passage that inspired this for me was Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is sharing his dream for the church and his dream is the dream for the church because he's the one who's purchased the church. It's, uh, he, is, he is the pastor of the church and we want to partner with his dreams. Amen? And so his dream for, the, for his church is that the world would see what he is like by the way we treat one another. And that is, that is the call and the, the mantle and the mandate on this house. Um, not to operate in this with perfection, and, uh, but, to, uh, but to, by the grace of God, look increasingly like the church is supposed to look in the way that we treat one another. It's a glorious thing because as the world sees us loving one another and unifying, like John 17 type unifying, what the world sees is the world sees what God is like. And that is actually Jesus's prayer is Jesus used this ragamuffin band of people that are increasingly becoming like me but are not walking in perfection yet and use them to show the world what we are like, Jesus says. All right, so um, I'm realizing as we're, as we're breaking into this topic that, that we are going to have to revisit this topic again in the not-too-distant future because as I've been studying the scriptures, the scriptures talk about the way um, God dreams for his church all over the word from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I'm seeing that so much needs to be discussed biblically. Let me tell you a few things I'm not going to break into fully today, but here's, here's a few things that we're going to have to talk about in the future. Uh, number one, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 16 says that biblically, God calls us one body, Okay, we are a body. We are a people. We have, this, we have this idea today, the gospel that many of us received is that we've received this personal relationship with God and each one of us needs to have a personal relationship going on with God. But we also have to have a theology where we can see that our personal relationship means that we also have a corporate relationship to each other with God. Okay, we are one body, and we are not to rob each other of the blessings of our presence with the body. It's very, very important. We're called one, and then that one body has many parts, and the many parts are you and I. And if someone's a hand, they shouldn't say, why am I not a foot? You need to be used as a hand. And this is where spiritual gifts can be, can be just uh, unleashed and uncorked on the body, but what we have to get before we operate in spiritual gifts is we have to get body down. We can't be rogue gifts, not attached to a unified bride, do you see? Okay, we have to talk, we're not talking about that today, but we will, we will talk about that soon, all right? You guys are alive out there, I only hear, so there's a lady over here that she's, she's loving, okay? Uh, but everybody else, I do not, I cannot tell you're there, all right? Um, but uh, yeah, just, just help me out today. I don't know, it's taking me a while to get warmed up. Um, Matthew chapter seven, verse 12 says this, it's, and many of us know this is the golden rule. I'm not preaching on this, I'm wetting your appetite. I'm saying we're gonna have to go here in the future. But Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I think I never hear this talked about anymore in the church. 
I think we almost think that this is like a nursery rhyme. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But this isn't a nursery rhyme. This is Jesus' dream for the church. This is how we are to treat one another. We are to, whatever you wish others would do to you, listen, eyes off you, eyes on others. Whatever you wish others would do to you, you start this train by doing it to them. Okay, that's how it works. And Jesus then goes and says, this is the law and the prophets. Woo, study that. Do you know that I I came across as I was studying the Bible and studying this topic of how we treat one another um, biblically, I actually came across scientific studies from people that don't even believe in Jesus, but they're actually studying his kingdom and don't know it. That's my favorite kind. Uh, The scientists that are studying the stars are like, these are complex, How did this happen? Well, and and so the scientists are actually studying. There's one scientist uh, in particular that came out with a, you can, you can, it's actually a TED talk. You can learn a lot in like, what, seven minutes. Uh, But uh, the, uh, this, this scientist from Brigham, Brigham Young University (laughs) discovered that the secret to a long life after uh, studying thousands of people for generations, that the, the secret to a long life is is not a low BMI. Can can someone give God praise, right? The, the, the secret to a long life is actually not even like not smoking, all right? Somebody needs to give God praise for that, right? Um, the secret to a long life is, is not taking your B vitamins and all that. All those things, they make the list, but they're way down. Do you know what is at the, at the very top of the list? Or let's start with number two. Do you know what is number two according to Christless scientists? You know what? As they've studied humanity, you know what they've found? That quality relationships make you live longer. That's number two. And number one is treating people with kindness. Number one. These are kingdom principles. And here's, we're not going after a long life. We're going after Jesus. But the fruit of following him, church, even, even the world is, is, is eating the fruits of the kingdom more readily than we are. And we, we must learn how to treat one another. How about this? I'm not preaching on this. I'm just whetting your appetite here. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 42. How about this? Well, we're going to have to go here in the future. But the, the very first, there's a word that is used to describe God's dream for how we treat one another. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The very first time this word is ever used is the word koinonia. Okay, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, that's koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Okay, now this word is pretty massive. It's actually found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13 as well, when it says the, the, where Paul is speaking to the financial gift of the Corinthian church to his ministry and to, uh, to the, the kingdom ministry. And he, he uses the word koinonia, but it's not just the word fellowship. He says, the generosity of your contribution. Now the word contribution is koinonia. Okay, and then Philippians chapter three with verse 10 where Paul is speaking to the Philippians about about participating in the sufferings of Christ. All right, very unpopular message. But if you study church history, we've got it great today, all right? But but here here Paul is, is saying this, share his sufferings. The word share, koinonia. 
Okay, now we need to do a whole series on this word because you get the word fellowship, contribution, and share. And many times when I think of, of the word fellowship, I think of church like I used to know it when I was a little kid, where you meet in a fellowship hall that always smelled musty. You see people that you hope you never get to their age drinking bad coffee out of styrofoam. That's what I think when I hear fellowship. We're going to meet in the fellowship hall. I'm like, good Lord, no. Uh, you know, but uh, we, we have lost, we have lost Koinonia. We have, we, it is participating in others' lives. It is contributing. It is, you don't watch community on a live stream. You participate in it or nothing. This is, it is, it is so important, guys. And so I'm not preaching on this. We are going to talk about this, though, eventually. All right? The, uh, in, a koinonia is an active participation in one another's lives. An active participation in one another's lives. Let me preach for a second on this, though. Okay, see, part of the angst and turmoil that we're facing today, all right, is due to the fact that so many are willing to speak into lives that they are not participating in. This is, this is, that is not how the kingdom works. You, you, you win the right to be a voice in somebody's life. You don't just shame them into, into obedience. It does not work. You have to literally walk a mile or two in their shoes before you ever, they have to know that they're loved before you lovingly speak. Right? And I think that, that our lack of understanding koinonia is actually self, uh, setting us up to just be mean truth speakers or some version of, of the truth that we think that we operate in. Uh, maybe, was that okay? Um, the, uh, your opinion spoken to someone you have not done life with is not going to be near as effective as your life is in their life. Okay? So we're going to have to talk about this stuff more. This is life on the hill. When people come to Providence or people get around the Providence community as we're at the best grocery store in the world, which is what is the, the grocery outlet, right? And as we, as we go to these places and as we, as we hit up, you know, uh, restaurants and as we, as we do life, people are going to have to feel like we, the, the life on the hill, the vibe on the hill is going to have to be, these people don't want to fix me. These people want to know me. All right. Now today, though, um, what I'm actually going to preach on is actually in First um, Samuel chapter 18. Okay, but it's also Proverbs 17, 17, 17, 17a. Actually, and I'm going to start this. I actually mentioned this on my last uh, message last week, um, and but I'm going to. I, I kind of ended with it. I'm going to start there. All right. So today, really, if I was going to put this under one banner, I want to talk about something that is so crucial in the church. So so incredibly important for discipleship, all right? Very important for discipleship, but something that is rarely talked about ever. They, everybody wants this and desires this for the most part, uh, but we almost never talk about it in the church. It's like we've under-spiritualized it. We under-spiritualize lots of things in the church, like eating. <laughs> Do you know every Old Testament, you know, feast it's commemorated around a table? Woo, come on. But this, I want to discuss the very, importance, uh, the very important concept of friendship in the body. Friendship, friendship, friendship in the body. Extremely important, okay? And I want to talk about what friendship is, what friendship isn't, what attacks friendship, and how friendship is used uh, in, the, in the body to make us more like Jesus. So starting with Proverbs chapter 17, 17, it says this. A friend loves at all times. Remember me reading this last week? 
Then it says, and a brother is born for adversity. But I want to talk for a moment. There's so much packed into that first part of the verse. I want to talk about that, like what a friend is. Because I think if, if many of us would define friendships that, you know, as people that we, ha- we share things in common with, people that, you know, oh, I like to ski. Me too. Let's ski together. We're friends. Um, or, you know, maybe you, you're friends because you are at the similar life stage to somebody else and you both have kids and they're both in first grade and so you connect on that level. And those are very important things and those people may be your friends, but they may not be your friends either because friendship is deeper than liking to golf together. Friendship, uh, in a biblical sense of the word, is much deeper than that and actually points us to how God treats us. How God operates with us. What is a friend? Well, Proverbs 17, 17 says, says, you know a friend by what a friend does, not just what a friend says. And here's what a friend does, and this is the definition of, of the word. It's the living out of the word that defines friendship. And here the Bible says, if you wonder if you are a friend or if you have friends, then here is really the only filter. Jesus just makes it very simple for us. Jesus says this, a friend loves at all times. That's it. Very simple. I love this. It's not calculus theologically. Um, it is very deep and very difficult, but it is plain as day. A friend loves at all times. Now, I was thinking about what structuring this message, because I do, actually do have a structure. I know you'd never guess that. Uh, but uh, I, I, I was thinking about, like, structurally, like, how do I go into, you know, loving friendship? And I just really wanted to read one part of the, of the Bible to you that really defines not friendship, but de- defines what love is. Because if love defines friendship and, and the quality of the love... <laughs> defines the the state of the friendship, then let's listen to this just for a moment. It's not going to be on the screen, but just listen to me read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting with verse 4. It says this, you know what a friend is? Well, someone who treats you like this. Love is patient and kind. (laughs) Just, I don't know, I just want to cross you and leave, right? (laughs) That's enough. We've got enough. I know I'm not a friend. I, listen, I'm not shaming you out of friendship. I'm calling you into it, all right? Love is patient and kind. This is what, how friends act. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Do you have a rude friend? <laughs> you know, you should stop calling them friend. And you should treat them like you would someone that's not one, all right? Don't be hurt by them. They're just rude. They're not a friend yet. It does not insist on its own way. I'll be your friend, but we have to always go to my restaurants, all right? I'll be a friend, but we, listen, no, no. A friend does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. When you succeed, your friend succeeds. And when you fail, your friend fails, And if you've got somebody in your life that says they're your friend, but when you get blessed, they feel bad, not a friend. Verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And now this kind of friend is the kind of friend that, you know, the Bible says the wounds from a friend can be trusted. When you're operating outside of the truth, this friend will love you enough to bring you back into it. Then verse seven says, love bears all things, that's what friends do, believes all things, that's what friends do, hopes all things, that's what friends do, endures all things. Is it hard to be your friend? 
Well, a real friend will endure with you, bear with you, so to speak. This is what friends do. And a friend loves like this. And listen, we're, once again, this is, not, this is not a call to perfection. This is just a call to be more like Jesus. Jesus, the grace and the power are available for you to walk in this. All right? But this is what a friend is. All right? And a friend loves like this, not just when it's convenient, not just when you're not disappointing, but all times. So, and it's all times friendship. Um, it's friendship is a love for or a love like this at all times. That means every high season you're going through, you got a friend, and then they don't leave you in the low season. And the valley, friend. At the top, friend. Everywhere in between, friend, friend, friend. All right? Um, if you're weird, the friend when you're weird. When they're weird, friends. All right? When, when you make no sense, friend. When they call you in the middle of the night, friend. You never have to worry that they're going to leave you if they're your friend. All right? You're never going to have to worry that, hey, I got to put on makeup. My friend is, no. You can just be you. And you don't have to worry about cleaning the house and getting things ready. And your weird golden doodle can jump all over them and weird them out. <laughs> and they're your friend. Doesn't matter. You don't, this is, friendship is, when love is the definition of friendship, suddenly performance is eradicated. Because it's about relationship, it's not about performance. The, the relationship that we have with Jesus is not based on performance. That's called religion. It's dead works. We're not saved by, you know, being good enough for Jesus. We're saved because Jesus was good enough. And that he gives us his righteousness. It's called justification. And then we stand in that righteousness. And actually Jesus says, I've shared my secrets with you. That's because you're my friends. And we actually, we, we then, because of the righteousness of Jesus, have the right to be friends with God. All time friends. Now, there's a, in Luke chapter 15, there's a story of a father and two brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. But in the, younger, the, in the story, the younger brother, he, he was a, like a, a multimillionaire, and he goes out and he leaves his dad. He says, I can provide a better life for myself with your money than you ever could. And he leaves. He says, I, I, I want to do life my way. And so he leaves. And basically what he does is he throws wild parties. And he had friends as long as he provided a party. And he had friends as long as he had money. And he had friends as, as long as, as, you know, things were surrounding him that gave other people a good time. And we, we, many of us, we build our lives like this and we say we have friends, but what people are doing is they're not, they're not being a friend to you, they're using you for your good time. Yeah. And then we wonder why, when you lose them, why, why, why did I lose them? Well, you weren't friends. You were building on a faulty foundation that had to do with your pocketbook, your house, or your stuff. Yeah. And you weren't building on friendship, Okay. And so the younger brother, he had friends as long as he had money, but friends as long as you're meeting other people's expectations. Friends as, as long as you're not disappointing others, okay? And that is not biblical friendship, my friends. So we know, we know a friendship where we share common interest, but biblical friendship is not, I'm not saying it's not okay to share common interest. I'm just saying that is not the foundation for friendship, Okay? Biblical friendship is sharing not just common interests, but a common covenant, a common commitment to one another. 
This is what the early church had in common. They didn't all like ping pong. They didn't all like golden doodles. They didn't all like just the same things and that held them together. They weren't, they weren't held together by common interest. And many times churches like, like that, that worship under the banner of Jesus, Jesus isn't really the interest. It's just like we like church people and we like our kids to play around with our church kids and we, we kind of like the, the fruit but not the roots of Christianity. <laughs> we like the fruit but not the roots, come on, of Christianity. And so, listen, the the biblical friendship is sharing a common commitment in Christ to one another. If you want your world rock, there's a guy, he's a Lutheran guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that wrote a book called Life Together. Just read that um, and pray through it. This is a, the cross is at the center of biblical friendship. Now, the greatest example and the reason that I had you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 is because one of the most beautiful examples of friendship is David and Jonathan. Now, I never thought in a million years that as we did a series called Life on the Hill, which is God's dream for a biblical community, that we would preach so much about the life of David. Krista Prey preached on David and Goliath. I just preached on it last week. And now we're going to the next chapter right after David and Goliath. And this is David and Jonathan. All right, now this is, this is a, a pretty beautiful portion of scripture and many of us have not heard this story. So let me, I'm just gonna read this to us today. First Samuel chapter 18, starting with verse one. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Wow. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, that sounds weird to us today, and we try to make that things that, that it is not saying. Because our friendship today looks much surfacier than souls melting. Verse 2, and Saul took him that day, and, and, and Saul was the king um, at this time. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That's because he wants to use the young man and his kingdom. Look at verse three. Then Jonathan made, see, you've got, you've got one person that loves Jonathan like a true friend, and you've got another person that, or you, you've got one guy, Jonathan, that, you, that loves David like a true friend, and then you've got Jonathan's father, Saul, who's the king, that doesn't love David. He's actually jealous of him and fears him, and he is using him, all right? He's useful to me, blessing him under that banner. But verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the the sight of Saul's servants. Now look at this just for a moment because here you you have have Jonathan giving David his sword and his sword all of his stuff, his robe and everything. And Saul tried to do that the chapter prior. But Saul was saying, this is how you have to fight the giant. And David's like, no, no, I take stones and I lodge them, right? And he's like, I will not wear your armor. But this is a different type of armor bestowal. This is armor where he says, where Jonathan says, I'm the rightful heir to the throne. But I see that the calling of God is on your life. So anything that I have, I see on you, and as you are elevated, I'll be elevated with you by a covenant, and I'm giving you the throne. Completely different. Looks the same. Completely different in heart. Now, what happens here is, do you know that the opposite of biblical friendship is jealousy? Jealousy. 
And look at verse 6. And jealousy is, is a, is a uh, well, you'll see. Um, look at verse 6. I was about ready to preach. But uh, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that was Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs, with joy, and with musical instruments. It's good. Verse 7, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And here's a pretty fantastic song. Um, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so we never sing that song around here. <laughs> Man, if you want me to dance, you got to sing that one. Uh, but, uh, and, and listen, in verse 8, uh, and Saul was very angry with this saying, and, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. If you read down in verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from him. And so Saul removed him from his presence. Then if you look down at 15, when Saul saw that he had that he, meaning David, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him, okay? Now, so you're seeing biblical friendship, and in the opposite of that biblical friendship, Saul is just scared of David because he's afraid that David's gonna take something from him that he wants. In other words, Saul loves his position more than he does this person, all right? Um, but, uh, but biblical friendship, let's go there first, is, is, uh, is number one, your heart's getting it together. You see that? Look at, you see verse two and three, uh, or look at verse three, Jonathan made a covenant with David because this is, this is ancient friendship. We have to look at this and we don't just write it off today. We have to, we have to learn from the past. We have to learn from the scriptures, amen? And so here's, here's how close-knit friendships were made. Jonathan made a covenant, that's a promise with David because he loved him as his own soul. In other words, he said, you know what? We're, we're gonna be brothers in heart. It's wild. So there's a, there's a promise that's made between the two that, that I, I'm, I've, I've got your best interest in mind, I've got your heart in mind, and you've got mine. And then, I, like I already mentioned, though, that Jonathan forfeited the throne that he was to inherit for David's sake. Sometimes you're going to see people and you're going to run into people and you're going to think that you know, you're pretty good at one thing, but you're going to find someone that comes and the calling of God on their life for the next generation is, is for them to take your place. And you can't be afraid of them. You have to say, hey, this is, this is, this is a kingdom. I, this is a kingdom of King Jesus. This is not kingdom of King Saul or King whoever. And you can't be afraid of the person. Actually, actually, God's led you up to that moment to give them whatever they need so they'll be more successful than you. And that's what friends do. Jonathan is not afraid or intimidated by David's success. Saul is. Jonathan, you know, is a... a pretty successful warrior himself, but he's taking anything that made him successful and he's saying, David, be great. So this is, this is today in the terminology that we use, this is when church becomes family. Church becomes family when you see someone else that's good and they're not your competition, they're the person that you begin to encourage. Do you know, it's hard to lead worship here because everybody's so great. This is not the kind of church where you sit in the, in the stands and say, oh man, I can do way better than them. If you do, you've got problems. <laughs> These are the best people I've ever seen. Uh, and you don't, you don't sit in the seats and, and, and say, you know, this is the kind of church where like, they're so great, I don't know if I could belong. Well, you can. We're, this is not about being great, this is about being called. Yeah. 
all right? We want to get behind callings here. We want to, the, the, this is, uh, this, the honest truth, the leadership of Providence is not building a kingdom that we're trying to guard for ourselves. We're trying to equip people to be better than us in the next generation. All right, so here's what it looks. Here's what that looks like, um, and this is when church becomes family. Um, I got my son Ethan's permission to share this, um, but when he was 12 years old, um, he's always been. Uh, I don't know if, if if we're related to you know Goliath and his descendants or something. Well, I kind of David wiped out his descendants. Uh, maybe it's just whatever. But uh, Ethan is tall. He's been tall all of his life, and uh, Ethan got to be about as tall as me almost at the, at 12 years old. Okay, I'm almost six foot two, and Ethan today at 14 is is six foot four and still going. The doctor says, um, but uh, and which is kind of going in line with his calling because he really wants to play basketball. And so I'm getting behind that as a dad. But there comes a, a time in family where um, if you're a dad who, when your son is six years old and trying to hoist a basketball out of hoop, if you come up and just swat it out of the air and say, "Not in my house," you're a bad father. All right, uh, insecure in every way. All right, so. So if you have to use a six-year-old to make yourself feel good, you know, um, see Angie today for soul care, all right? <laughs> but there was a time where, you know, I was actually a good dad, takes a six-year-old boy and tells him to grab the ball and lifts him to the hoop. And when he dunks, you act like you did that on your own. But there comes a time then where a boy begins to become a man. And, and that, was, that was right around 12 for Ethan, where I said to Ethan, I said, listen, Ethan, I want to let you know from this day forward, I will never let you win at basketball. I'm not going to try to shame you and rub your nose in, a, in, a, in a, a loss or anything like that. I said, but I just want to let you know the next time you beat me, it will be because you really beat me. But I made him that promise. Okay, and so we played for about two years, and I beat him, and I beat him, and I beat him. He would tell everybody that he could beat me. You know, and I would say, words are cheap, my son, you know? <laughs> yeah, do you want to prove that in front of them all? And actually one time, well, you know, last year, Ethan wanted to play me in front of all of his friends at the Y, and I knew he couldn't beat me, so I didn't embarrass him in front of his friends. So I'm trying to be a good dad, all right? So I said, no, not today. I said, you know, I, I don't want to lose in front of your friends. Okay, but the, just two or three weeks ago, um, Ethan challenged me to a match, and he's two feet or not two feet, but two inches taller than me now. He weighs over 200 pounds. He's been training, works out about three to five hours a day at this. And in fact, right now, he's, he's playing for the York Ballers at a, um, at a tournament in Lancaster. Um, but, uh, but this was the day, and I was kind of, I stretched a lot. And I, uh, I t- uh, we, we went out and we played. And, and the, the goal is to really beat me. Yet you played to 21, you have to win by two. And to make a long, uh, long, very painful story short, he beat me 21 to 16. Fair and square, 21 to 16. Now what happens though is this is, I know we're not, we're not talking about, we're talking about family. And there's some things in the family that are, it's like, transitions to manhood. Those important, uh, those important moments in a young child's life, are very important. So Ethan, Ethan was, was sad, and I was like, I was, listen, proud, okay? Yeah. I was proud. I told everybody. I told everybody, listen, Ethan beat me fair and square because here's what happened, here's what's supposed to happen in the church is, and this is why we've been talking for almost two years now about the church is supposed to be led by fathers and mothers, not executives in a business because executive in a business that they, they love their income and their job and they do not want to be supplanted. Fathers, moms and dads in the church would die to be supplanted. 
So I, I, I was so glad that my son beat me because I, every want in my soul and every desire in my being is I want to be used by my son so he can be greater than me. Isn't that it? That I, I want to be used by my son so he can be greater than me. I, I want him to step on my shoulders and go higher than I ever could. I want my ceiling to be his floor. This, this is what family looks like in the church. And this, my friends, is what friendship, friendship just looks like family in the church. You say, you're, you're in a relationship, and, but you're not, you're not using this friend for you. you. You're in a relationship to have a mutual exchange of heart where they want you to be greater and you want them to be greater. And you say to them all the time, step on my shoulders, become greater. And they say, you step on my shoulders, become greater. And actually the competition in the church is not to knock one another down and ruin other people's you know, uh, credit. But the, the competition in the church is who can honor the best. I mean, I want this. Do you? And we must regain this in the body. And friendship is actually is actually what you ride. Friendship paves the way. If we have a, a real understanding of what, of what friendship is, this is what begins to pave the way. This and this safe place of friendship where you've made commitments to one another that I'm gonna see you become the best that you could ever be. That is when you win the right to speak into their life. And that is when, oh, that is when disagreement can turn into iron sharpening iron. And, and, and not just worldly spewing of frustration. I, I want to sharpen you. You are sharp, but let me, let me sharpen you a little more. You're good, but you could be great. I see the call of God on your life, and I'm not focusing on what's not. I'm focusing on what is. And so I'm not making it my, my life's ambition to help you grow by telling you what you're not. I want to see the call of God on your life. And here Jonathan says, David, you're a king. Take my sword. David, you're a king. Take my robe. You, you are not jeopardizing my future. My future will be better if you're my king. But Saul was completely the opposite. Saul was afraid of losing his spot because, listen, guys, if you don't know that the Father loves you, and you don't know who you are in Jesus. You don't know that, that Jesus is not looking at your faults and your failures, but he's looking at, at his righteousness that he's given you, that you have now received by faith. And now you are a son, though you did not deserve to be. That he's not looking at what you were, he's looking about who you are, who, he's, who he says you are, you are. And when you don't know who you are, you tear people down to feel better about yourself. And this is what Saul was doing. This, is, this, was the, this was the legacy of his kingship. He didn't know who he was to begin with. But Israel wanted a tall king. So Saul being tall becomes king, but never knew true identity. And so since he didn't know who he was and he didn't know who God said he was, or at least he didn't believe it, he was unable to make other people great. He took great people, tore them down, threw spears at them and feared them and hunted them all of his days. Quite a legacy. But here Jonathan is the hero of the story. Jonathan says, I could be king by blood but the anointed king is in my presence. I'm covenanting with the man to make him great, to make him great. 
Now, we don't have kings and things like that today. And so, like, what does it look like in the church today um, to develop friendships in the church? I think here's a few of the few of the greatest things that we can do. It's not a comprehensive study, all right? But here's a few of the greatest things that we can do is I would say share meals. Share meals. You know that? You know sharing meals is spiritual. Spiritual things happen around tables. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't. Old Testament feasts were celebrated with food around tables. And, and a lot of times the food symbolized something about the, the freedom and the provision of God in the past or promises coming in the future. But something happens uh, between hearts when you, when you eat together and when you're not clamoring for who gets the last muffin, but when you're actually, you want to sit down and you want to enjoy something wonderful, some of God's provision, and you're looking into people's hearts. Yeah, how's your day? One conversation that I fight for this with all of my heart and my family. Everybody speaks around my table and everybody listens. And there's one conversation going on, not 17. And it's very hard. We, we haven't gotten this perfect yet in 14 years. Or even 20 years. Even Adrian and I didn't get that right when it was the two of us. It's hard because everybody wants to talk. But listen, this is, there's something happens when we share meals around, uh, around tables. Do you know that the men on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were open to see that Jesus was the risen Messiah when he broke bread around a table? You know that? Now you do. There's something about breaking bread around tables. There's something about sitting down for a meal that, that can be uh, eye-opening, spiritually speaking, to seeing God. Uh, eating together can be one of the most spiritual things that you've done in a while. And maybe you need to get off yourself for, man, I didn't wake up at four in the morning to you know, pray for an hour. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying you should. Do, do it more. But like, like also, here's something else you can do. Call some people up that you need to connect with and eat with them. Have them over, all right? As you're eating together, create a seat at your table for something new, for someone new. Do you know that, that um, people can't be discipled if they can't get a seat? And many times the church turns into, it's so clicky that, that the relationships are already formed and there's no space for somebody new. And then they come and we, we're like, life on the hill, it's great. Jesus is a friend. We're friends with Jesus. But, but your, your circle is so tight that, that you say, welcome to the table, but you haven't done the part of making a, a space. Here's where you should sit, right here. Sit at our table. We went, in other words, we're welcoming you in and we're going to lengths to make it happen. We're not just hoping it does. So you can, I don't know what this looks like in your life. Maybe it's at your house. Maybe it's in your, your small group. Maybe it's in your friendship circle. But you've, you've got to start saying, God, who are the kings of our day that we can have the privilege of covenanting with and befriending and seeing them become greater than anybody could ever know if they even know? All right? Create a seat at your table for someone new. Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. Practice hospitality. The, the amount of times that the scriptures call us to, you know, practice hospitality on one another, basically. Show hospitality to one another. They're, they're almost limitless. We miss them today. We don't, <laughs> we, we don't bear with one another, practice hospitality with one another. We don't do those things today because we're too busy. All right? But I'm calling us to be a kingdom church. And so practicing hospitality, show hospitality to one another. That is, uh, 1 Peter 4, 9 uh, says that. Being, being someone who operates in hospitality is really being a hospital for people. 
That's where the word, that's the word, the, the word hospitality comes from the word hospital. So that you would be someone that doesn't just preach a sermon to them, you would be someone that they can heal around. And when I get around that person, I just feel like my heart's healing. I don't know why. You're someone that, that doesn't just tell them about the love of the Father, but you're, you're so full of the love of the Father, they can drink of his love when they hang around you. You spill him out on them. You, you should be an encounter with God for other people. Not because you are God, but because you know him or are filled with him. All right? I found that the best small group leaders are not the best teachers. They're the best hospitalers. You know that? And there's this, there's this really big push that, you know, if you can teach, what, what are we going to study in our, in our small group? Well, I, I would like to see a movement at Providence to get away from what are we going to study in our small group because small groups aren't the, for the purpose of learning necessarily. I know I'm, I'm going to offend all kinds of people here. This is, I know, but this is just, it's a, it's a churchy cultural thing that needs to be challenged, all right? Listen, when you take somebody who wants to gather other people and make them feel safe and make them feel seen and make them feel welcomed, and they don't have a teaching gift, but they are a hospital, and then you put it, you, you, you get, kind of put this load on them, but now you have to teach a Bible study to make it spiritual, you're missing the kingdom. All right? It is very spiritual to gather friends at your house and laugh and play and eat and linger and see what happens. And just because you didn't go through a Bible study doesn't mean that biblical community didn't just happen in your midst. We have to have our eyes open to seeing a, a, a better more glorious, more Christ-exalting kingdom that God is calling us into. Listen, I just want to speak courage into the lives of people who were created to cook for others and to gather others and to see others. I want to speak, I want to tell you, begin to gather people in places and begin to see the love of the Father hit those places. This is, in fact, at Providence, here's one of the things I'm working on this season is I'm creating a teaching team for the express purpose of going into small groups so the burden of teaching isn't on the host who's being a hospital, but, they're, but we're, we're being family. And so we got uh, group leaders that maybe their first gift is not teaching, maybe their first gift is hospitaling, and then we as a community say, hey, you're a hospital. Okay, like, you need some teachers? You guys want to study the book of Daniel? You guys want to study the book of Ezekiel? You want to talk about the dry bones? You want to talk about the wheel? Okay, well, we had, you, since you don't know that, you shouldn't teach it. Do you know that not everybody should teach? You'll hurt people. All right? Just like not everybody should do surgery. I'm not saying that everybody can't teach. I'm just, I'm just saying that not everybody should. And I said, we, we want to be a community where you can call and you can say, hey, Pastor Ed, do you have somebody that's good with Ezekiel's wheel? He's like, yeah, that's me. I'll be there next Thursday. Let, let, me, let me just, just uh, share this last thing. Remember when I was talking about, you know, biblical friendship and us just championing one another and saying that the opposite of biblical friendship is actually jealousy. Jealousy does the opposite of what friendship does in the body. And jealousy can fly under the radar because you can, you can talk about, hey, I've got, I've got some concerns, but they're not legitimate biblical concerns. They're jealousy masquerading as something else. And here, here Saul could go to his officials and say, I've got con some concerns about David. I'm, I'm not going to give him the 10,000 people under his command. Let's just keep it at 1,000. I've got some concerns. I, I don't really know, you know, like maybe let's just kind of really keep a good eye on him because of my concerns. But really what that was is jealousy. 
Really what that was is Saul didn't want to feel bad about himself. And so somebody else's greatness made him scared. And I think that one of the best things, you know, we can, as we're sharing meals and we're practicing hospitality and we're sending teaching teams into homes, those would be great things for our future. But I really believe that what God would call us to do today is, is that we would, be, we would be destroyers of jealousy in the body of Christ. And life on the hill would not look jealous, but life on the hill uh, would look like friendship. And that sometimes friendship has, has to be started by repenting of jealousy. And so this morning, if you want to take a first step in the, the direction of God's dream for the church, and you want to take a step into being a better friend and having better friendships, and you want to step out of complaining about what people are not, and you want to walk into being a person that sees who people can be and covenanting with them at heart, that you need to, take, you need to let the Holy Spirit touch every part of your soul that has a jealous spirit, a jealous attitude, and you, some of us here today need to apologize to someone. Maybe that someone will be in the room. Maybe that someone lives in Arkansas. But you need to get on the phone and you need to say, I've been making your life rough, but it's really because I'm jealous of your strength and I haven't been able to celebrate you. Maybe there's someone here today that needs to, uh, you need to commit to drinking in who you are in Christ so you can see other people flourish and stop seeing other people as someone that's going to make you look bad. That's a jealous spirit. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you just ask the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be quick to point out your jealousy because it's not like Jesus. And so today, I, I just want, as simple as this message may or may not be for you, I think simply speaking, that if we commit to destroying jealousy, and it's nasty in this region. I think, I think it's, it's, it's more about you and it's, it's, there's a whole lot of, there's like something's over this community, this jealousy, man. Um, and I, I think that, that we need to begin to say, God, I repent of this. I break ties with this. I, I'm apologizing to other people. And maybe if that's you today, maybe you just need to start by praying with somebody up front and saying, I've been this, would you help me? And they can pray over you and help you get freedom. And then you can bring freedom to other people that you've been jealous of. Sometimes the kingdom is just that simple. You walk into relationship, help me, you help them. And it is there. But how many of you would know, don't raise your hand, but how many of you know that you know that you know that if we allow Saul-like jealousy into the hill, uh, we're never gonna walk in God's heart. Don't you know that? Let's go after this, amen? So in fact, just kind of hold your hands out on your lap. And this is just a posture of just receiving. So, so Heavenly Father, we, we receive anything that you would point out in our lives. We don't make excuses for it. We don't have to defend those actions. We just invite you right now, make us more like your son. Make us more like Jesus. Whatever we need to do to make these things right, we will walk in them. So just lead us in this gracious, kind calling where you're calling us into greater things. So God, we just pray that we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the way that we treat one another, God, just pray that over us. It, jealousy would be nowhere to be found, but it would just be a purity of heart that wants to see other people walk in the greatness of their calling and wants to see Jesus magnified and glorified and marveled at in their lives. We bless you. We praise you. Ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you'd like to partner with us, you have the opportunity to give online at providencecommunity.org. 